0: Good morning, everyone. We are going to be uh, today in Acts chapter 10, if you want to begin the process of getting there. <clears throat> I feel like I began on a somber note. Good morning, everyone. It is good to be together. I'm not really sure where that came from, but uh, it's good to be together. We are... going to be in Acts chapter 10. Uh, One commentator I read this week said this of this chapter. He said, this is the most important chapter, perhaps, potentially is what he said, the most important chapter in the entire book of Acts and potentially one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. Well, how's that for priming the pump a little bit? That's a statement. Father, we do pray if indeed this is one of the most important chapters in uh, the book and maybe in the Bible, we pray that we would have hearts Lord, that are really ready today, especially, to receive it then. And, Lord, that you would use your word to minister, to draw us in. Lord, remarkably, every soul in this room in a different place right now. And so, Lord, we pray that you would minister, Lord, to each one of us by your Holy Spirit. And you'd bless your word as it goes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Acts chapter 10 is such an important chapter because it is the account or the story of the gospel going forth, not just amongst the Jews, but going forth amongst the Gentiles and the vast majority of the world being Gentile. I think today it's estimated that 2% of the world's population is Jewish. And so 98% of the people in the world are not Jewish, and the gospel going forth essentially to those individuals is what we're going to be looking at and spending our time uh, this week uh, and in next week, the gospel going out to non-Jewish people, that is the Gentiles. Now, God had always worked among the non-Jewish people. And you go and you study in your Bible and you look and you see people there like Rahab and you see people like Ruth and you you see others whom God worked Uh, today, Will, in his prayer, he mentioned the people of Nineveh and the way that God desired to call those people to repentance. And so God had always worked among non-Jewish people in the past, but in those instances, when you look at a Ruth, you look at a Rahab, you look at folks like that, essentially the invitation was, you can become a Jew too if you want to. That was essentially the invitation. So if you want to get right with God, you've got to adopt Judaism and, and be right with God in that particular way. What we're going to see now, and what I imagine the majority of us have experienced, if we're a non-Jew, we didn't adopt Judaism in order to become a Christian, or become a Christian and adopt Judaism, but we continued to live with our general ethnic background of who we are, and Jesus Christ came in to sort of refine that and reform that. And that is because of what we see in this particular chapter here, God's work in people's lives without them having to become a Jew. Now, we're going to pick up in uh, chapter 10. I mentioned to you the last time we were together, if you were with us, that chapter 10, uh, chapter 9 actually, returns uh, us in Luke's, remember Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and it returns his look at that man Peter in particular. And so the first half of the book is primarily looking at the working of God through this guy, Peter, pretty much, the Holy Spirit working through this guy, Peter. The latter half of the book is his work through that fellow by the name of Paul. Now around chapter 7 or so, Peter looks at a guy named Philip, he looks at a guy named Stephen, he actually looks at Paul very briefly, but then he returns in chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12, and he really focuses attention on Peter again. And so here we are now in Acts chapter 10, and obviously Peter is going to play a very central role in this particular chapter of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. I'll remind you of this verse. It's Matthew 16. I think we have it for the screen. Matthew 16 says this, and I tell you, you are Peter. This is Jesus speaking. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you build on earth shall be bound in heaven. Excuse me, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, some of you may be immediately familiar, others perhaps not. That is in response to Jesus's question, who do people say that I am? And the disciples, it seems, kind of looked around at one another. And finally, Peter said, the Christ, you're the Messiah, That's who we believe that you are, the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus responds to him, he says, Peter, upon this rock, upon that statement of faith, I will build my church. And then he says to Peter, and I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, people throughout history have interpreted that a variety of ways. There's There's a basic interpretation that has perhaps come out of the Catholic church background, which says that this is where Jesus sort of passed Church leadership onto Peter, or he would pass church leadership onto Peter. Peter would become the first pope. It's probably even where we get that general idea that when we die, we're going to go to the pearly gates and see whom—St. Peter. People say that the Bible doesn't teach that, but that's just this general idea that is out there that we'll meet General Peter or General uh, the uh, the Apostle Peter, and he'll have the keys to the you know heaven and that kind of thing. There, that wasn't what Jesus was getting at. What Jesus was getting at was two things, essentially. Number one, Peter, that statement of faith is so significant. And then secondly, this idea that Peter was going to be used by the Lord. Peter, the fisherman. Peter, kind of probably the bad-mouthed guy. Peter, the guy that would deny the Lord. Peter, that was so impetuous. All these things about Peter. He would use Peter to proclaim the gospel on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 Jews come to the faith. And as we're going to see in this particular chapter here, he would use Peter to first proclaim the gospel essentially to the Gentiles. Without any stipulation, you have to become a Jew or any of that sort of stuff. He would use Peter. If, God, if Jesus would have literally gave to Peter a key ring, it would have had two keys on it. One to unlock the door for the Jewish people and one to unlock the door for the Gentile people. And so with that, let's begin. I'm going to read the first eight verses. We have an ambitious goal today to make our way through 23 verses of this chapter, and then we'll pick up the next 25 or so next week. But beginning in verse 1, it says this, now at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household, and he gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. Now about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, send men to Joppa to bring one Simon, who is also known as Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent those men to Joppa. Excuse me, one second. <clears throat> now, the last time we were together, when we left off, we saw that Peter was down in Joppa. He was staying at the, in that town, a seaside town, uh, today on the outskirts of the city of Tel Aviv, if you're familiar with that. Uh, and he was staying there with a man by the name of Simon the Tanner, Simon the leather worker, the man who produced leather products. As we begin chapter 10, you can see it there in the first verse. It says, now at Caesarea, the city of Caesarea was located maybe 20, 30 miles north of the city of Joppa. It was also a city that was on the coast. Um, It was a Roman government city in that day. You recall that the Romans had taken over what sometimes is called Palestine, what sometimes is called Judea. That area of Israel, they had taken it over and they had sort of occupied it. And they had a Roman provincial government that was there in Israel. Their headquarters, their capital, was here in Caesarea. Um, Today, we refer to this as Caesarea Maritima, because there's a few different Caesareas that are in Israel. And we visit this particular Caesarea when we take our trips over to Israel. It's pretty much the first place we go, uh, I imagine, many of you uh, that have been there do not remember being there because you get off the airplane after 20 hours of flying and you tour there and you're asleep through the whole process. But it's a really great place uh, when you're there, I can imagine uh, from what they tell us, uh, but we slept through it. But it's a beautiful place and it, when you go there, it has been completely unearthed. Uh, they have you know, the, the stadium that used to be there and where pilots' home used to be and all this. It's really amazing. You really get a sense of what a Roman city is from, from being right there in Caesarea Maritima. And this was sort of the headquarters of the Roman government. Pilate would have lived in this particular place here. It was a predominantly, as you can imagine, Roman city. Now, I bring this up because this is the sort of city a Jew wouldn't want to go to. This is the sort of city that was just sort of throwing salt into the wound of you've been taken over by us. And this is the city that God is going to call Peter to go to to talk to a particular fella. It tells us there in verse 1, that at that city there was a man named Cornelius. And then it gives us a little indication of his job. He was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Now the Roman military was organized like many military uh, units are and things like that. And so you had sort of the military, which comprised everybody that was in it, you had that. And then it was broken down into sectors that were a little more manageable. The first was the legion, and a legion was consisted of about 6,000 men, 6,000 soldiers or soor, of sorts uh, that were in it. Every legion was made up of what are called a cohort, and they were made up of 10 of those cohorts, and they were comprised of about 600 men. And each one of those cohorts was divided into a century, made up of about, very smart, made up of about 100 men. And so the head of the cohort was probably called a centurion, because that was a century, excuse me, the head of the century was called a centurion. And that's what this particular fellow was. He was the centurion, his name is Cornelius, and he was the leader of about 100 men or 100 men he would lead. Now, we find mention of centurions multiple times in the Bible. It's very interesting how they pop up a number of times in the Gospels, a number of times in the book of Acts. The other thing I think is interesting is every time that we see of or we read about a centurion, it's in a very positive light. Even though these are Romans, even though they were non-Jews, even though they were the occupying force, when the account is written about that particular centurion, it's written about them in a very positive light. If the scriptures are trying to convey a message about the centurions, then clearly the message is that they're thought of very positively. They were seen as the backbone of the Roman army. They were the individuals that were most directly connected to the rank and file and then also connected to the officers and things like that. So they were the people where much of life, kind of much of military life, revolved around. And so the fact that Luke tells us that this man Cornelius was a centurion gives us some insight into this fella. He was a leader. He was a man of character. Now Luke will go on and tell us some other things as well. Notice, he says, in addition to those things, just because he's a centurion, He tells us in verse 2 that he was a devout man who feared God. Now, the Jews actually had a name for that type of person. And by that, what I mean is a Gentile that loved the God of Israel and was sympathetic to and supportive of the Jewish people. What the Jewish people referred to that guy, obviously in their language, but translated into our language as they called that person a God-fearer. And so here, Luke says he was a devout man who feared God. He's basically using that title. He was a God-fearer. Now, there was a difference between a God-fearer like Cornelius and a proselyte or a convert like Ruth or like Rahab, which we read about in the Old Testament. A a God-fearer was one that was supportive of the Jewish faith, worshipped Jehovah, But they didn't go all the way to becoming a Jew by receiving the rite of circumcision or adopting sort of the customs and the practices and the diets of the Jews and things like that. And so they were a God-fearer, but they didn't go all the way over to full conversion to the Jewish faith. According to the Jews, God-fearers could actually come to the synagogue. They were allowed to attend the synagogue, but they had to sit all the way in the back. They weren't allowed to sort of be a part. So they were, they were kind of a part of Judaism, but they were still seen as outsiders to the Jewish people. They could be observers, but not full participants. In the eye of the Jewish people, they were delighted about these God-fearers. You're on the right track, but you're not there yet. You still got a little more to go. They, hadn't yet fully em- they were not yet fully embraced by the Jewish people. And therefore, since they weren't fully embraced by the Jewish people, it was considered improper for a good Jew to go into the home of a, of a God-fearer, to share a meal with a God-fearer, to come into close contact and fellowship with a God-fearer. They appreciated them, but they weren't fully sort of welcomed into the fold, if you will. All right? And so you have all that picture? Very important to the rest of our story. And so Cornelius, well-respected, Centurion, God-fearer. third thing that he tells us here is found uh, also in verse 2. Luke tells us that this man gave alms generously to the people. Now, specifically, that's the Jewish people. All right? An alms is a gift of charity. It's a financial gift of chari- charity. And so this fellow who came to rule over the Jews and make sure they stay in their place, you are th- we are occupying this nation and you are our servants, this man gave of himself for the needs of the Jewish people. That's saying something, isn't it? All right. And so he looked outside of himself to the needs of people that he shouldn't have really cared about, and he cared about them nonetheless. We learn that about this man, Cornelius. And lastly, we are told in verse 2 that Cornelius was a man that prayed continually to God. So this is a guy that I think we could agree is truly seeking to know God and know God according to the light that he had already been given. So we'll see later on. He doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't know everything exactly. But he's beginning to have the light kind of turn on. He's kind of coming into that light, see things, understand things. And based on what he is seeing, he's moving forward in that direction, worshiping Jehovah and the like. What he does not yet have is an understanding of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? Why did he have to do those particular things? He doesn't yet know those things. He just has his basic knowledge of things. And so, God, in his kindness, and this is what's so wonderful, I think about the scripture because this is how the Lord works in every one of our lives. God, in his kindness, is going to provide him with the opportunity and he's going to use Peter in that opportunity to sort of unlock that door, push it wide open so that Cornelius can go through. When I was in high school, I was about 16, 15 years old. That's when I I first, I can look back now, as the first time I began to seek God, for God, but I had no idea that I was seeking for God. I didn't know what I was seeking, to be quite frank, but I was seeking for something different. And God began me on this process down this particular path. And in his grace and in his mercy, and I imagine your story is very similar, It finally, the path finally came to the cross of Jesus Christ. And I, now I realize that's what I was seeking. That's what I was looking for. That's what God, the, the uh, vacuum that God had birthed in my heart that only the cross could fill. That's what Cornelius is going to discover. So he knows he's seeking, but he doesn't know what he's seeking. And so God goes and he finds him. How beautiful that is. God finds him and explains it to him. Verse 3, it says, uh, now about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Now, we're not told specifically that he's praying during this particular time, at least not here in verse 3, but it says that it was at the ninth hour. And we do know the ninth hour, also known as in our lingo here, 3 p.m., was the time that the Jews would gather to pray. And so it seems like he's following the Jewish custom of stopping in the afternoon and spending some time in prayer. We also see, if you go down to verse 30 for a moment there, you'll notice when he's retelling the story, notice how he retells it. He says, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying. All right, so we can conclude rightly that he was praying, and it was during that prayer that God gave to him a vision. And it says that he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God. And this is why I said earlier that God found him. It was during this late afternoon time of prayer that God found him and sent him an angel. And the angel would start the process of bringing Peter to Cornelius so that Peter could explain to him the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to the light that had been given to him, he didn't know that. He knew about Jehovah. He knew that his pagan gods were like false and foolish. But he didn't know yet who Jesus was, why Jesus did what he did, what Jesus even did. And so God brings him an angel and starts the process where Peter is going to explain those things to him. But before we get to that, look at verse 4. It says, now Cornelius stared at the angel in terror. And he said, what is it, Lord? And he said, your prayers have been answered. He stares now at this angel in terror. That's typically the response in the Bible when somebody sees an angel. They're terrified having seen that angel he is himself but he's able to muster up the courage at least to speak to this angel and he says here what is it lord now he thinks that the angel that's terrifying him is the lord when in reality we know that it is an angel and the lord refers to god but this guy is just figuring these things out mistakenly he calls the angel lord there's going to be a few times in our passage today where Cornelius is going to have either some practices or some thinking that need to be refined. Here he calls the angel God. That's not correct. Later on, he falls down to worship Peter. That's obviously not correct. And so he's going to have some things refined in this particular process. But he calls the, an- the angel Lord. And the angel graciously, I think, just sort of said, well, we'll put that aside. And he said, let me just get down to business of why I'm here. Remember, the word angel, I say remember because we've talked about it before, the word angel, it, it means messenger. And that's what he's there for, to deliver a message. And so he puts aside kind of the error of his thinking, and he says, all right, I have a message for you. And the message is twofold. Number one, he says, Cornelius, all of your prayers... When you cried out, I can imagine, to know God in a clearer way, you just didn't feel like you had a grasp of it and you wanted to have a grasp of it. All of those prayers have been heard. Your charitable deeds, your kindness toward God's people and toward others has been seen. He says that there in verses 4 and 5. And then the second thing that he tells them to do is found down in verse 6, verse 5 and 6. He says, send men to Joppa the city, to fetch Simon, who was also called Peter. And the reason, he goes on to say, uh, that you might hear from him. Hear from him what the Lord commanded. I say go on to say, because that is later on down in verse 33. Go down there for a moment. This is, again, after Cornelius and Peter meet, retelling the story of what happened. And then Cornelius said this, so I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come now, therefore, we are all here to hear what it is you have to say to us. All right? And so uh, the command, going back to where we are in our passage, the command is, uh, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your charitable deeds. Now, send some men down the Joppa to fetch Simon to bring him up here that he might tell you what it is I want to tell you. Now, question, why can't the angel just, why don't we just cut to the chase? Have the angel do it because that's not what the angels do. The angels aren't the ones that are preaching the gospel. We're the ones that are called to preach the gospel. I I draw your attention to a a book that is recently out. It's called Dreams and Visions. Who wrote that, Robin? Do you remember? That guy. Some guy. We met him in Israel, actually, ironically. um, But he's a Calvary guy, and he's doing, don't tell anybody, work in the Muslim nations over there, because it's illegal what he's doing, but um, Jesus told him to, so uh, pray for him. And uh, he's talking about the way that God is going behind the closed nations, the Muslim nations, and revealing himself to them through these visions. But he's doing so in such a way where it's, you know, people are having a dream of a guy, you know, wearing jeans and that shirt and and stuff like that. And he's taller and got this voice and all this kind of stuff. Uh, And then people go to the, uh, this is a bad story, I'm telling you, I'm trying my best here. But people go to the train station, there's the guy in my dream. And so they go up to the guy in the dream, and they're like, I had a dream about you. Yeah, well, I had a dream about you. God told me to come here to tell you that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and he loves you. And Muslims are getting saved in that particular way. Similar story to what we're seeing here. Dreams and visions. We'll find out the name of the author. Golly. (laughs) It's a fellow named Tom Doyle. Sweet guy. Yeah. Some of you may recall when we were in northern Israel, he was out on the veranda of this place we were having lunch. And he was doing like a a tour. He was doing a speech. And Robin kind of, she got up like next to him and listened to the speech. And she's like, that guy's really good. You know, you should go out there and listen to this guy. And we got talking and and he's from a Calvary in California and so on. So anyway, let's move on. Verse 7. Now when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. I really appreciate this about Cornelius, because God tells Cornelius what to do, and what does Cornelius do? He does it, and he does it right away. He doesn't think about, I wonder what God meant by that, and all this kind of, he just does it. He goes for it, and so he gathers these two men, or three men actually, and sort of with this unquestioning obedience, he sends them there. He explains to them what's going on. Go down 30 miles to the city of Joppa, find this fellow Simon, and ask him if he'll come back to me. We pick up in verse 9 but before we do notice what how god is working so god is working over here with cornelius and he's doing his work there as we pick up in verse 9 what we see is god's working over here in peter's heart it's so amazing how the lord can work in that way and so that when these two come together it's at the perfect time. Both of them have been prepared. Both of them are ready for God to do something. And so Cornelius over here, now Peter, has to be prepared. Quite frankly, Peter is not ready to do what it is that God wants him to do. And God has to get him ready, and he's going to bring him through some things that are going to prepare him for the calling, which is a little bit down the road for him. Starting in verse 9, it says, Now the next day, as they were on their journey, And approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. He was really hungry. And he saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, "By no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean." And the voice came to him again, a second time, "What God has made clean, do not call common." And this happened 3 times, and then the thing, the sheet was taken up at once into heaven. So as I'm saying, Peter would need to be prepared. God is going to call him. We'll cut to the chase here. You probably read ahead anyhow, but God is going to call him to go into the home of a Gentile, a God-fearer, but still a Gentile. Remember, the Jews didn't go into the homes of Gentiles, whether they be God-fearers or not. They didn't eat meals with Gentiles, whether they be God-fearers or not. They didn't rub shoulders with those particular individuals. And yet, that's exactly what God is going to call Peter to do. Peter is not yet ready for that calling. And so Peter, who still thinks like a typical Jew, even though he's a Christian now, still thinks like a a traditional jew would have thought in that day and age has to have his thinking refined i think many of us that come to the faith have to have our thinking refined there's a worldly way of thinking a cultural way of thinking a natural way of thinking and then there's a biblical way of thinking and a lot of us we have to have our minds changed our hearts changed so we think more like how god thinks and less like how we naturally think here peter God is going to change his thinking and God has already begun this process of in Peter as we've been looking at in our studies on Sunday mornings. We saw back in chapter 7 chapter 8 where Peter was called to go to Samaria. Now remember the Samaritans they were half Jews is how they were seen kind of Jews They were kind of infused with the thinking of the invaders that had come in and the the periods of captivity and things like that. And so the Jewish people of Judea and Galilee didn't really like the Samaritans. We spent some time with that. We looked at that. And God called Peter to go to Samaria to confirm the work that he was already doing there in Samaria through Philip. And we saw that. And God is changing Peter's thinking. He's enlarging. He's opening his heart. He's opening his mind. remember when they were going to go to uh, Jerusalem, the scripture said that they must needs pass through Samaria. That wasn't the reality typically. They would go all the way around Samaria because they didn't want anything to do with the Samaritan people. And yet here, God is enlarging the thinking of Peter. And he goes and he sees that the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people of Samaria just as he was poured out on the Jewish people in Acts chapter 2. That was the first example of God changing Peter a bit. The second example is where we left off last week and where our passage kind of began today, and that's in the city of Joppa. Peter, once more, is being forced and face-to-face with the cultural norms of Judaism and putting those norms aside so that he can instead do what it is that God was calling him to do. Specifically, you recall, he was in the home of a man by the name of Simon the tanner. Now, Simon's a Jew, just as Peter was a Jew. But Simon was an unclean Jew. And the reason why he was an unclean Jew is because of his job. He was a tanner. That is, he was a person who worked with skins or he worked with leather products or produced leather products. And that meant he had to work with dead animals all the time. And so he was always unclean. And I even gave you the kind of the extreme example. The rabbis of first century Judaism actually put in place an exception for a woman to get a divorce from a tanner because that tanner was unclean. She had an out in the marriage there. She could get the marriage annulled, so to speak. We might use that terminology uh, in our society. So tanners were unclean. Simon Peter should not be in Simon the Tanner's home if he's following the cultural norms of the day. And yet he is in that home. God is changing his thinking. He's refining his thinking. Things that would have been unthought of before, going with the Samaritans, no way. Living with a tanner, no way. But God is stretching him. He's changing him. Now, he's going to have to go actually spend some time, go into the home, eat with Gentiles. I mean, this is all the way on the other end of the spectrum here. Uh, of culturally inappropriate. God's really going to break down in Peter his prejudices that he brought to the equation. And God needs to do that. We need God to refine us, not just on our outside external behavior, but even the way we think about certain things and how we respond to certain people. For Peter, it involved the Gentiles. Now, wisely, I think, the Lord decides to ease Peter into it into the lesson here again going back to verse 9 it says now the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray so peter or cornelius's men are making their way there it's 30 miles away so it's going to take them over a day to get there and so god's going to spend some time really focused on peter working in peter and he moves upon peter's heart middle of the day to go and take some time by himself away from the bustle of the household and all that and to go up on the rooftop. Remember, their rooftops were kind of like decks. They were flat. um, So it's not unusual that he climbed up on the roof. And he goes up this deck here and he's out there and he is praying. Middle of the day that we learn that he is there. And as so often happens, I'm sure a lot of us can testify to this, he's trying to pray. He's trying to read his Bible. And now all the distractions come. Have you been there as well? You know that and you got to mow the lawn don't forget and you got to make sure you go get the dry cleaning and you begin to think about all the stuff you do and sometimes you even come to the conclusion I don't have time to sit here and pray I don't have time to sit here and read my bible I got all this stuff to do well for peter his distraction was his physical body he wasn't hungry 3 minutes ago but now he's starving and he's so hungry it says that he falls into a trance the distraction came his particular way but God in his grace is going to use his hunger This distraction, this trance-like state that he finds himself in, God is going to use it. And it says in verse 10, he became hungry. He wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, you know, he doesn't have a microwave there. It's going to take a little bit of time. He fell into this trance and he saw the heavens opened and something like a big sheet, picnic sheet, descending, being let down upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of reptiles and birds and animals. Uh, of the air. Right? God shows Peter this vision. Now, this is going to be a special revelation in order to prepare Peter for ministry amongst the Gentiles. But it doesn't start out that way. Nobody would have drawn that conclusion from the initial sheet descending. Certainly, Peter didn't. But as we're going to see, these unclean animals and reptiles and birds and all of these things that he is a good. Kosher Jew would have never eaten those particular things. All of those unclean animals, reptiles, and birds, they're going to represent the so called unclean Gentiles. And God is preparing Peter for the wonderful ministry that Peter is going to have among the Gentiles. But again, Peter's not ready for that. And so the Lord kind of eases him into it. And he deals with his prejudices by first dealing with these particular foods. Very uh, sort of tactical picture that is in front of him there. Verse 3, tactile, I should say. Verse 13, now they came, there came a voice, rise, Peter, kill, and eat. Now that, those instructions go against everything that Peter had grown up following. None of these things, they're according to the book of Leviticus, this is not kosher, these sorts of things. So all of these things go against what Peter had grown up with, and so for him to eat of these things would have meant just kind of throwing out that commitment that, I don't know how old Peter was, 25, 30, 35 years, had sought to live under. But God is changing Peter. Verse 14, Peter responds, notice, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now, this is perhaps the largest oxymoron uh, in our Bibles here. Two statements that sort of contradict one another. By no means, Lord. No way, Lord. Because to call someone Lord is to call that person master. It's to say, I'm at your beck and call. Whatever you tell me to do, I will do. To say by no means says, I'm not going to allow you to tell me what to do. And so those are two contrary ideas it's an oxymoronic statement or sentence and yet can we blame peter right can we blame peter for responding in that particular way he had lived his entire life with a different mindset and now he was going to abandon that mindset and adopt a new one and there's really no explanation at all at least not initially and so he says by no means lord maybe he thought it was a test maybe God was trying to test him and see if he was really committed or something. Very good, Peter. You you passed the test. But that's not what God is doing at all. No explanation here initially. So he says, by no means, Lord. And then verse 15, now the voice came to him a second time saying, what God has made clean, do not call common. He sort of explains it, but he doesn't fully explain it. He doesn't say, Peter, what I'm trying to do is show you through food what I want you to do with the Gentiles. Oh, I get it. Thank you, Lord. He, he just sort of says, Look, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. What I've called clean, don't call common. And he leaves it with that. Now, obviously, Peter doesn't get it. Look at verse 16. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. So God has to come back a second time. Same thing. Comes down, eat. No way, Lord. All right, take it away bring it back down, eat. No way, Lord. All right, three times, and he doesn't get it here. Two additional times it comes on. Now, at the very least, we see later that he's pondering these things. At the very least, Peter is probably thinking after the third time, God's probably trying to tell me something. I don't know what it is, but he's trying to tell me something here. And if that's what he's thinking, which I imagine he is, he's almost certainly thinking, I wonder why God's changing my food diet Maybe he's thinking something like, I wonder what they're preparing downstairs. This will be different, you know, or whatever. And maybe that's what he thinks it's about. Well, I didn't know God cared so much about my lunch, you know, that he would give me a vision. And so he doesn't really understand. He doesn't fully know. And so the drama goes on. Look at verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius... Having made inquiry for Simon's house, they stood at the gate. And they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go, and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and he said, I am the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And so he invited them in to be his guest. Pretty cool. So God gave him this vision. He repeated it for him on two more occasions, three total times. And yet Peter, he still doesn't get it. And so as it says there in the opening verse of that little section, he begins to ponder. He begins to think about it, really try and work it through. What could God God be trying to get at? And as he's doing that, remember, God's working here and God's working over here, over here with Cornelius, over here with Peter. As he's doing that, just as Peter's thinking about these things, God brings these people into Peter's life, so to speak. And uh, they arrive at the house. They they call out whether there's a guy named Peter that is staying there. Uh, And, uh, of course, um, Peter can hear that. And we, we see that here. Notice this about these three men. These are Gentiles. One of the men is a Roman soldier. Now, those Roman soldiers, they respect the Jews' line of thinking. And so they don't just go kind of kick the door down. And say, where's Peter? You know, and with the handcuffs or whatever, we're taking him with us. They call into the home. Is there a man here named Simon who they call Peter? They respect the boundaries that the, the, um, the Jews have here. It's a reminder to us of the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. Excuse me, is there a Simon here, a man that they call Peter? And Peter hears that. But even as he hears that, the Holy Spirit is still working in his heart. The goodness of God. Still working in his heart. And he says, Peter, go downstairs. There's three men that are looking for you. And when they come, I want you to go with them. So Peter hears his name being called. He hears what the Holy Spirit says. He goes down uh, the stairs, verse 21. And Peter went down to the men and he said, I'm the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? Now, the Holy Spirit did not tell Peter That the three men that were downstairs that were looking for them were three gentile men that were looking for him just the three men are downstairs looking for them and so when peter comes down those stairs i don't know if there's a door or whatever but when he opens the door he sees two gentile men and a third gentile man that is a roman soldier do you think that perhaps caught peter a little off guard not what he was anticipating, not what he was expecting, probably so. The Holy Spirit, though, simply said this, go downstairs and go with these men without hesitation. I don't want you to think about what they're wearing and where they come from and who they are and what their background is and what your culture and custom says. I want you to just go with these men, whoever they might be. And Peter will eventually go on to do that. Still trying to figure this whole thing out still trying to work through this whole process of the unclean animals and eating the stuff I've never eaten before. And then now there are these three Gentile men that he was told to go with without hesitation. Now, in verse 21, in so many words, he said to them, how can I help you, gentlemen? All right, so you can go back and you look at verse 21 there. Uh, he says, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? We might say something like, how can I help you? And the three men they launch into sort of their prepared speech, starts in verse 22, they say, Cornelius the centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what it is that you have to say. Now there's a lot of words there, kind of just get the chunk, the meat of those words, come to the house of a Gentile soldier is what they're saying. The Holy Spirit very specifically said, I want you to go with those men without hesitation. So Peter knows his instructions. When he got the vision, I'm not really sure what this is about. Let me think about this. I need to get it three times. There was some ambiguity. The Holy Spirit said, I want you to go with these men that are downstairs looking for you and I want you to do so without hesitation. And so Peter is, that's his instructions, go. And he says that you might share with us a word from God for us. Now, what a wonderful invitation. Wouldn't you like it if somebody came to your door and said, could you come across the street? I have my whole family assembled. Would you explain to me the gospel, the good news? Some of Kevin, what? This is the best. You know, a lot of us be like, that'd be the greatest thing in the world. Some of us be a little nervous about that. Um, But Peter is like, you bet. This sounds great. I can't wait. All right, But it puts him face to face with his previous prejudices against the Gentile people. So we might look at it and say, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. Man, I'm so excited. And run across the street to go talk to those folks here. But Peter now has to wrestle, oh, I've never been in the home of a Gentile. I've never been in the home of one of those people. And so he's got to factor that into this equation. But the Holy Spirit said, go without hesitation. I wonder if he's thinking, I try to put myself sometimes into their perspective and what are some thoughts that might be going through my mind. Could I go into the house of an unclean Gentile? I've never been into the house of an unclean. That's a familiar word. It reminds me of the vision that I just had. That reminds me of what God impressed three times on me. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. And Peter's saying, well, I call them unclean. I guess I shouldn't call them unclean because God said to go with them without hesitation. And so that's what he does. Peter goes. Now, prior to that, he invites them in I, I, you know, we went this long way. Let's have lunch. And I'm starving. You know what I mean? So let's have lunch. So look at verse 23. And so he invited them in to be his guest. Don't call unclean what I have called clean. Gentlemen, why don't you come on in? And he invites them into the house. That's something a Jew would never do. He invites them into Simon the Tanner's house. I'm sorry, he's like, what is going on here? He probably looked at Simon, and Simon said, it's okay. And he invites them into the home, and there they enjoy a meal together. They sup with one another. Peter breaks the traditions and customs of his people, but he does not violate God's word, both God's written word and God's spoken word to him through the Holy Spirit. But he violates the traditions and customs of his people of his particular day in order that he might stay true to the word of God. And he invites these men in. They stay the evening. And then as we read in verse 23b, the next day he rose and he went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And when we come back together next week, another cliffhanger, got to get you to come back to find out what happens. But when we (laughs) come back together next week, we'll find out. Uh, what happens when they get to Caesarea. So make sure you come. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for Peter. Lord, I think a lot of us can relate with a guy like Peter. So where he came from, the mistakes that he made, the very public ones sometimes a lot of people observe and remember. And yet, Lord, you use him even as you use us. Lord, you worked in his life. You challenged him not just about some external behaviors, but even the internal, which lead to those external behaviors. And God, you're gracious. You're refining us, you're causing us to be made more into the image of your Son. And sometimes, Lord, it's painful, but we know it's good, we know it needs to happen. And so we pray that you would open up our eyes, our hearts, our understanding. Lord, you would use circumstances, even like the vision you gave Peter, to get him thinking deeper and differently about some preconceived ideas within him. And you would do that in each one of us, Lord. Again, for the goal that we would be more like your son. And so bless your word. Lord, the seed has gone forth. It's entered into our hearts that we do pray that it would bear much, much fruit, a hundredfold fruit in each one of our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.